Hi, and welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm your host, Sam Stern. Voices of Esalen is a new podcast coming out of the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, and our goal is very simple. We speak to and interview workshop leaders and cutting-edge thinkers, and we get down to brass tacks and really examine their ideas. Today, our guest is a really brilliant guy, really super sweet dude, Rick Hansen. Rick's books include Hardwiring Happiness, Buddha's Brain, and Just One Thing. The subtitle of Rick's book, Buddha's Brain, I think it describes his, his work really, really well. The Practical Neuroscience of Happiness, Love, and Wisdom. I really enjoyed talking to Rick um, and getting to know his work more intimately because the practices that he prescribes are so rooted in simplicity, in practicality, and in mindfulness, resonated with me really deeply. Uh, Rick's accolades are many. He's a senior fellow at the Greater Good Center of UC Berkeley. His work has been translated into 25 languages. He's spoken at Oxford. He's spoken at Stanford. He's spoken at Harvard on the BBC, CBS, NPR. And luckily for us, here this week at the Esalen Institute. Rick was really kind um, and he took some time out of his super busy schedule uh, to speak about neuroplasticity, psychology, contentment, mindfulness, kindness, and love. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Rick Hansen. First of all, thank you so much for, for being here and taking part in the Esalen podcast. It's a real pleasure and a real honor. I appreciate your work very much. It's really my pleasure, too. I'm glad we're doing this, Sam. I guess my first uh, question, just to lead off, you, one of the books that you've published is Hardwiring Happiness. And I'm just wondering, are we designed in a, such a way that we hardwire unhappiness? In some ways, we really are. I mean, the cut to the chase, it's like there's a quantity effect for beneficial experiences, but there's a quality effect for harmful experiences. So most people, most minutes and most days are having mainly neutral to mildly pleasant experiences with obviously some significant, even tragic exceptions. But most of those beneficial experiences, which are the basis for growing the inner strengths, loving kindness, compassion, determination, gratitude, grit, insight, etc., even though beneficial experiences are the primary fuel for developing ourselves in those ways, the brain has a bias. Scientists call it the negativity bias. I call it like Velcro for the bad, Teflon for the good. That means that those moments in which we feel irritated, worried, hurt, trapped, put upon, pressured, cranky, or traumatized, boom, get fast-tracked into lasting, especially implicit memory, it's called, emotional memory, body memory. And that's really useful if yeah. you're trying to survive in the Serengeti, uh -huh. uh, right? But today, even though it is occasionally useful if you are working in a war zone or you grew up in what was like a war zone, for most people most days, it's like a well-intended universal learning disability, mm -hmm. the result of having a brain optimized for Stone Age conditions. And that's why I focus on hardwiring happiness, paying attention to those usually little moments that are authentic in the flow of everyday life, 
in which if we just give our brain the chance to show up for the experience and stay with it 5, 10, 20 seconds in a row, we increase its encoding. We help it sink in. Since in the saying you know, neurons that fire together wire together. Yes. The more we can get those neurons firing and that are beneficial neurons, the longer they fire, the more intensely they fire, the more in the whole body they fire, bit by bit, drop by drop, we fill up the cup. So if I'm having a, a pleasurable or peaceful experience, let's say I'm sitting out on the lawn and it's sunset and I'm just I'm feeling happy, you're recommending staying with that for just a little bit longer than usual. Yeah, or if you're already in it and you're naturally staying with it, um, I'm thinking again and again and again. It's a little bit like, think about your money in the bank. What's the average rate of return per day? What's your interest rate per day? Your growth rate per day? That's it. Okay. What's your average growth rate as you move through your day? So there you are on the lawn, suite at Esalen or anywhere, and yeah, really show up for that. And in everyday life, you're walking down the street and you get a hot dog and the vendor smiles at you and it's a moment of contact. That's an opportunity. Mm -hmm. You get something done. Uh, you finish a task. You get your child to bed. You have a nice moment with your dog. Um, maybe there you are in your meditative practice or something you're doing and there's an there's a insight or realization that feels within reach, uh, but it's not quite stabilized yet, consolidated yet at your growing edge. Take it in. Let it land. Any single time you do this usually will not be a million dollar moment, but the gradual accumulation, mm -hmm. the steepening, first of all, of your growth rate, the degree to which you uh, learn from or translate from state to trait your ordinary beneficial experiences could arguably be uh, the most important single factor in your life, mm -hmm. if you think about it. Yeah. Because even though the difference, like in your money, between 6% and 5% may not, or 3% and 2%, may not be that much on any day. Over a month, a year, a lifetime, it makes an enormous difference over time. Yes. And then also, in addition to whatever you're getting from opening to and showing up for and receiving into yourself, a kind of intimacy with your own experiencing, without attaching, without clinging or craving to these beneficial, usually enjoyable experiences going through you, if, as you do this, you get bonus benefits of being on your own side, of treating yourself like you matter, and also gradually sensitizing your brain to the positive, undoing that uh, hardwired tendency towards sensitization to the negative. Mm -hmm. So your brain, in effect, becomes more and more like uh, Velcro for the good mm. and Teflon for the bad. Yeah. Well, I've uh, really been enjoying reading your book, Just One Thing. and. Uh, I felt like I wanted to ask you more about, in this book, you teach about 52 concrete techniques to sort of uh, to bring in what, what we've just been talking about, bringing in the good. And I wanted to ask you if you wouldn't mind expounding upon some of the ones I found really fascinating. Oh, cool. Good. How about say yes? All right. Yes. Let's talk about this. Uh, well, uh, first is frame. We're all busy, you know, I'm a householder like most people. I mean, it's one thing to practice sitting in that cave, right, or in a contemplative community. You're really focused on that. But for people uh, in the West in general who are householders like myself, raising a family, having jobs, mortgages, life, you know, hassles and so on, how do we practice? And it really can help to just have one thing mm. that we're focused on these days or is a key for us, maybe 52 of them, one a week perhaps. I've known people who've gone through this as a year of practice. Mm. Or maybe we just know, you know, there's that one thing that really is my own 
Uh, vitamin C, I call it. It's yeah. my one thing to really keep focusing on. So saying yes, I took that term from theater, improv, where whatever happens, you say yes. Yeah. And um, it's a way of orienting to life where I may not prefer this. I may not like this at all. It might. I may not like it for you. The fact that, let's say, you are some refugee in another country, but I can say yes to the fact that it's true and not turn away from it. Right. And also say yes to those beneficial experiences that most people, one, don't notice the good facts that are their legitimate basis. Mm. We just blow right by them. huh? Or we see them, but we don't feel anything. That's the second error, that we don't move the needle. Say yes to letting the good fact become a good experience. And then say yes, third, to the thing, again, that most people don't do. They'll see the good fact, they'll have the good experience. They won't metabolize it. Mm -hmm. They won't take it in. They won't swallow it as it were, yeah. and say yes third to the internalization of that good experience. Mm -hmm. Say yes to others, I'm doing that right now. I'm tracking you, I'm registering you. I'm saying yes to the being behind your eyes. Mm. And as soon as you feel like you're said yes to, you can feel it right now, both of us, it can make a lot of difference. The, you're describing the feeling of someone being attuned to you. Yes, and also uh, when you're on the receiving end, and also, uh, in a sense, on the transmitting end, recognizing the being behind the other person's eyes, mm. behind their face. Yeah. That's powerful, isn't it? That is, that's magical. Yeah. That is really profound, <laughs> thank you. How about, this is, might be related, but get excited. When I read this in your book, I was like, this one really applies to me because sometimes I feel like I'm at a baseline. I'm sort of, uh, um, I don't, not dull, but maybe uh, emotionally, kind of like it's hard to, to go to a high point. Yeah, I deliberately put that in a little bit because I was writing for, in part, uh, a more mellow, maybe mindfulness audience. And I think to a fault, maybe we can become a little soporific, you know, mm -hmm. sort of, uh, and you know, there's a place for tranquility in Buddhism, the contemplative tradition I know best, tranquility is one of the seven factors of awakening. It's that big a deal. Mm. It's a place for tranquility, you know, not suppression, not numbing, tranquility, peace what the Buddha called that highest happiness, which is peace. That said, I think for a lot of people, especially if they have any issue with depressive mood, or they've been shutting, they've shut down due to trauma or their own difficult history, or they're just kind of numb, like a horse that's been carrying a heavy load way too long, up too many darn hills. And so accessing a sense of excitement, enthusiasm, aliveness and vitality can be very uh, reparative and healing in terms of blue mood or feeling immobilized and also it can bring a juiciness uh, that is uh, really uh, pleasurable and useful in its own right. So how do I do this if there's uh, if I can't even think of the things that get me really yeah. juiced up or it, is it is it um, searching out novel experiences? Oh, how to do it, great, yes, yeah. how to get excited. That's right, well first accept the temperament. Like I'm actually fairly calm in my temperament, even though I can kind of get animated. And um, so, you know, we have different ways of being excited and some of them are culturally appropriate and not, depending on your setting. Watching sports. Yeah, try not to freak other people out when you do it, you know. But move the body, stand up, inhale. Inhaling alone accelerates the heart rate. Heart rate speeds up as we inhale because it engages the sympathetic nervous system, that wing of the autonomic nervous system. Um, 
Be around people, uh, do, move your body, engage activities, play ping pong, mm -hmm. uh, take your dog for a walk. Your dog's excited, you know, let your dog kind of like induct you, right, <laughs> into that way of being. Uh, hang out with little kids. You know, one of the neat things I do is I do therapy sometimes with kids. Mm. And the people in my office, they just start laughing that I make a living, you know, playing games with kids sometimes, telling jokes where they hear us all laughing in my office. So, yeah. And for me, it has to do, in a sense, with the essence here, which for me, which is competency and self-reliance. And what I mean by that is, you know, we tend to focus a lot on outwardly directed skills, uh, operating as working through a spreadsheet or operating a forklift. But what about inner competence, being uh, careful, being careful, competent with our own thoughts, our feelings, our desires, our own process, including skillful with meta-learning, learning how to learn, getting good at getting good, steepening, in other words, our growth curve over life by steepening our, and increasing our growth rate. That's a kind of competence. Yes. So that relates to getting excited. And the other thing for me is about a kind of self-reliance and inner freedom so that we have access to all 88 keys on the, in the piano of life. Yes. Maybe we have our sweet spot. I'm pretty calm, pretty mellow. That's kind of where I'd stay. But being able at will, as appropriate, to bang, to boom on that deep bass, or go ding, 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 really high. And then you have a kind of inner freedom in which you can respond supply to whatever comes your way. And I'm very interested, is a recurring theme, on how do we resource ourselves? Mm -hmm. How do we grow the resources that enable us to play all 88 keys at will? Yeah. Beautiful. Okay, here's, here's, a really interesting one. Enjoy humility. <laughs> I love that one because it sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? Yes, like it an does. oxymoron. Like, what are you talking about? Because of course, humility sounds like being less than others, or and it, or it can feel like being a doormat, uh, used and abused, mistreated, and so on by others. To be clear, first, as I say in that little part of the book, each one of those chapters is about three pages, short and sweet is I don't mean anything like that. I'm not talking about um, a kind of sense of inferiority or less than other people. On the other hand, if you think about it, very often where we really get into trouble is taking things personally or getting caught up in trying to impress others, trying to be better than, um, you know, trying to uh, get people to see us in positive ways in ways that go beyond reasonable, you know, effective desires to be regarded well, hired for a job, have them buy your book, choose you as their partner, and so on. Um, and so there's a kind of wonderful uh, happiness and peacefulness. You know, as they say apparently on both, in both death row and monasteries, no self, no problem. Mm. As we have less and less sense of me, myself, and I, and we have more of a sense of humility or a synonym like mm. modesty, mm you move through life much more easily. Mm. You become less of a target for other people who are reactive to you getting big for your britches, or when they come at you, maybe for their own reasons, you feel more like thinking about Esalen, more like the kelp of that through which the waves flow, mm. rather than standing there like a you know, self-important cliff, yeah. bang, yeah. that that wave of the other people hits and lands on. That's why I mean enjoy it, enjoy it. How long does this process take? <laughs> you mean, well, <laughs> well, you know, there's a joke that says as you climb up the trail, as it were, the path, as you follow the path 
up the mountain, as it were, of awakening. The view gets better, but the path gets narrower. And what I've found for myself that as I go along, uh, tipping into selfing, you know, reality starts whacking me pretty quickly. Selfing? Selfing, me, myself, and I, I'm special, I'm important, my book is better than your book, you know, uh, my teaching's better than your teaching. Uh, you go there, you just feel it really mm. fast. You feel the contraction in your body, you feel the internal sense of losing touch with an ongoingness mm. of kind of peaceful, love, happy lovingness. Ugh. Yeah, enjoy it. <laughs> okay. It seems like kind of almost a magic formula. I mean, for you as a teacher, you have to be sort of a... authority figure in a way. A yeah. lightning rod for people to... It's so, I assume there's a bit of sort of like a, a magic almost to engaging, slipping out of the ego and engaging with the not, or not selfing. You're exactly right. And as a teacher yourself in your own ways, um, it is a really interesting practice. I mean, for me, just honestly, the last 10 years have seen a lot of kind of rise in my own career, as it yeah. were. And what's been really interesting about that is how, honestly, I think it's, it may sound egoic to say it, which is obviously the paradox, but there's, there's less self over here today than there was 10 years ago. Mm. Partly through the opportunity to internalize healthy, so-called narcissistic supplies of feeling included and valued which paradoxically allows there to be less ego around those, the history of deficits or pain or trauma even. Why is that, Rick? Because as you fill the hole in your heart, there's less craving related to that hole, which can take the form of, on the one hand, denying that you actually really want to fill that hole yeah. and, and moving more into distancing in relationships, or the other form of manifestation of craving, the other expression of this craving, is to be clingy and kind of working other people, even covertly, to get those supplies of recognition and mm -hmm. prizing and so forth. And so as you internalize it, it's really interesting. Very. Yeah, as you internalize the sense of, um, you know, being valued and wonderful, as it were, the craving and the seeking of feeling wonderful falls away. Is, is, partly, is it partly because once you've received that recognition that you've craved, you are able to note its lack of importance or it's, it's not quite as hugely important as you once thought it was? I think you're right. I think both are true. I think, for one, the main point I'm, I'm emphasizing and really trying to give people permission for is to listen to the longings in your heart. Mm -hmm. They are your teacher. Maybe the expression of those longings, uh, the three-year-old, tone of some of them isn't really viable today, but the essence of the longing is valid. Mm -hmm. And to listen to those longings and to actually let yourself receive what would have been so good then, right? Then being your last relationship or your childhood. And when you do that, what's really interesting, you repeatedly, I call it 10,000 times, 10 seconds at a time, you repeatedly with repetition, repetition, mm. um, uh, help your brain learn and change and grow, repeatedly internalize the felt sense of being um, included and loved and liked and appreciated and seen. And as you do that, uh, you then carry that sense with you increasingly unconditionally. Mm. It's inside you. It's kind of like loading your backpack mm -hmm. or fill up your tank. And when your tank's full, you're not 
you know, searching for every little gas station down the highway. Yeah. It's kind of like that. Yeah. And then you carry it with you. And so your sense of, of self-worth, which very relates a lot to social supplies like feeling seen by others and feeling cared about by others, um, your sense of worth, your sense of inner peace, your capacity to love others, even when they're not being so lovable maybe, um, that becomes increasingly unconditional, mm. less and less dependent upon external conditions. Mm. And, and then you become increasingly free. I'll tell you a little, quick little story. I had a yeah. friend who was a monk in Thailand for about nine years. Now he's a massage therapist in North Dakota. So Grand Rapids, North Dakota, calling him out. <laughs> he's your guy. Anyway, he's bet, you know, most Zen massage you'll ever get in your life. Anyway, something like that. My point is, I asked him once, did you meet anybody who was enlightened? Right? And he said, well, first in those cultures, they watch you for a while. They see how life is. What do you do when you have a toothache? What do you do when people are nasty to you? You know, what do you do when you lose your mother? You know, that's really it. It's not like having a white light moment in the West. The next thing you know, you have your own TV show. Okay. Second, he said they were always the same. There were people who were considered to be fully cooked or very far along, and they were always the same. I went, what do you mean? He said, well, in this sense, sometimes they'd be animated, they'd be excited. Sometimes they'd be tranquil. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they'd be firm. Sometimes they'd be very sweet. But the thing that was always the same is that if you were nice to them, they really loved you. If you were awful to them, they really loved you. <laughs> yeah. Their love was unconditional. It wasn't contingent on, dependent mm. upon conditions. Mm. And I think, wow, as a lot of what interests me is reverse engineering. What's going on in the brain of a Buddha? How do we work backwards mm. from people we know or might their voices speak to us through their writings over the centuries or millennia even, or they're just someone in our own life, or once upon a time we were really dropped into a very profound zone, as it were. Let's do some reverse engineering. What are the underlying um, conditions that the mind arises dependently upon? In other words, in the nervous system, my primary interest, especially in the brain, what are the underlying conditions of the wonderful states of sublime mental activity? Deep peace, deep wisdom, deep contentment, deep love. What are the underlying neural substrates or networks or circuits or processes that support, not reducing those sublime states mm -hmm. to underlying neurochemical gushiness, but appreciating that we, even as we're maybe mindful of the body, we are body full of mind. We have a mind that's continually constructed, constrained, conditioned by underlying physical conditions, apart from whatever might be the case transcendentally. Um, and so in that framework then, as we have a growing understanding of those underlying processes uh, through directly stimulating them repeatedly, through, for example, repeatedly internalizing a sense that others care about you and value you, Right? Repeatedly internalizing a sense of commitment to your own sobriety. Or repeatedly internalizing uh, the knowledge that your partner's alcoholism is not your fault, for example. Or repeatedly internalizing a sense of your own strength that can, and, and proper entitlement to have your own needs met mm. in your family relationships, let's say. As you do that repeatedly, again and again and again, you're stimulating those neural circuits. Mm. And by stimulating them, you are strengthening yeah. and hardwiring happiness, in effect, broadly defined, into uh, the fabric of your brain and therefore your life. Or 
the body usually fires up, burns supplies faster than when they replenish. Uh, systems are disturbed, long-term building projects are put on hold. Um, and in the mind, there's this uh, overarching sense in terms of those needs and systems, let's say, in three words, fear, frustration, and heartache. And to me, the red zone, the reactive mode of the brain, the red zone that I'm speaking to here is a modern neuropsychological operationalization of the second noble truth of Buddhism, the truth of craving, broadly defined, the resisting of what's unpleasant, the grasping after, the chasing, the drivenness toward what's pleasant, the clinging to what's heartfelt in terms of you know, safety, satisfaction, yes. and connection. It kind of maps quite well, yes. right? So what so much of life is about, I think, if you're at all interested in practice, is intervening in the world as best we can to reduce causes of red zone reactivation, especially inside your own mind. When you're in the red zone, try to move out of it as rapidly as possible. And then especially when you're having green zone experiences, even in an imperfect world, relatively mild green zone experiences of you know, ordinary feeling strong or relaxed or noticing you're all right right now in terms of safety. Help it sink in, feeling protected, feeling others have your back, they'll be for you. In terms of safety, yeah. in other words, let it sink in. Also, take, take that six to twelve seconds. Yeah, which that's right. There's no magic number, but more better, mo better, key term. There's probably a threshold around one or two or three seconds, unless it's incredibly intense or like a flashbulb trauma. Uh, it's that experience has got to be sustained in short-term memory buffers in the moment in in your experience for at least a few seconds in a row mm -hmm. to have a prayer of getting encoded or to yeah. begin to be encoded, and the longer the better. You yeah. know, duration. Okay, so when you're having those experiences, those green zone experiences, the responsive mode, it doesn't mean you're having a white light moment or you're enlightened, but it's an ordinary experience under these umbrella headings of peace or contentment or love. Man, don't waste it. Take it in, let it sink in. So that when the world starts flashing red, you can stay green about it. Or when reactive, thoughts or feelings or desires arise in your own mind, they do so in a larger space yeah. that's, as it were, responsive rather than reactive. So in that context, that aspiration without attachment, okay. right? Very often we pursue our goals, and I know this well myself, on the basis of re the reactive mode. We're driven, mm -hmm. we're attached, we want it to happen. Mm -hmm. If you want to track a sense of internal pressure or insistence, that's a real indicator that you're probably in the red zone there. And so the question then becomes, how do we dream big dreams, swing for the fences, go for it strongly? Yeah. Or in the example I use in that chapter, climb 511 in rock climbing. Um, how do we do that without tipping into the red zone? That's really interesting territory. That's what I mean by aspiration without attachment. Yeah. And how do you do it? All right? I think there's some key factors. I'm going on a bit here. I'll summarize and finish uh, concretely. Uh, one is track, track red zone ways of being, reactive mode ways of being about goal seeking, about ambition, doing work, getting tasks done, um, pursuing your point with other people. Watch that tipping. It's so subtle sometimes into craving and clinging and thus suffering and harm for yourself and often others as well. So tracking, tracking your inner dashboard, yeah. watching those little lights, almost like in a recording studio or in an old, you know, uh, I don't know, amplifier at home, the red lights, green lights, you know, just rising and falling, okay, in different parts of yourself, one. Two, um, go for it with a whole heart. Set yourself up to win. 
what often tips us into the red zone about our ambitions is we didn't really, we didn't have, we didn't enjoy the humility of respecting what the causes and conditions actually need to be to truly set ourselves up to succeed here, to, you know, get that partner to agree to marry us or to have our book actually be read by more than our mother yeah. or two other people maybe that we paid to read it, uh, something, you know. Um, set yourself up to win. So in my story about rock climbing, I set myself up to win yeah. and that allayed my anxieties, kept me out of the red zone, mm -hmm. um, that. Another is to be, to know in your heart you can live with failure. It's huge. It's not your preference. It, in terms of the friend test, think about a friend. You would wish for your friend to succeed. You'd wish for your friend to climb to the top of that mountain, get that person to marry them, if that's relevant, um, you know, have their book succeed, get their hot dog stand off the ground. You'd wish that for them. But at least for yourself, to be able to wish it for yourself out of an inner benevolence and kindness mm -hmm. for yourself, the one being you know most intimately, mm -hmm. the one being over whom you have the most influence, yourself, right? I mean self is personal together, not some kind of internal I. Um, to both really be on your own side in terms of your goals and honoring them, honoring them. For every person I've known who got crazy driven about their goals, I've known 19 people who didn't pursue them sufficiently, mm -hmm. to be really honest, me included, especially when I was younger. And, and also to, to find that place in your heart in which you can be at peace with not getting the result you're going for. And there's a lot of practice around that kind of equanimity. Yeah. That's the intersection really of ambition and equanimity. A different kind of intersection is compassion for others and equanimity as well, where you can hold the goal, the desire you have, the aim, the healthy, the wholesome desire. Desire is not problematic per se. It's whether it's a wholesome desire and whether it's a wholesome desire pursued with wholesome means and also whether we're unattached to the results mm -hmm. in a deep sense. Yeah. You know, we're, we could be at peace with whatever happens. I think that's a great way to do it. Yeah. And then it's win-win. Yes. Either you uh, get the goal without a lot of collateral damage of red zone reactive processing around it, or you don't get the goal. But in your heart, you know you've gone for it with a full heart. You know, what's the th line from Friday Night Lights, you know, Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose, right? Something like that. And you're at peace with the result. Beautiful. How about one more? You have so Great. many. You have so many in here that are so good. Oh, thanks. Oh, wow. This is one of my favorite ones. This is, a, this, is a, this is one we have to do. Notice you're all right right now. Wow. I'm glad that's one of your favorites, you know. What I mean by that is a communication of respect for you. Because I think that's really central. What I mean by that is to notice that in most moments, your body is basically okay. It may not be a perfect moment, it's probably not. You might be a little thirsty, your stomach might be growling, there might be a little background, but you're, you're breathing, there's enough air to breathe. The heart is beating, the organs are okay, basically. You may not have been all right truly, in the past. You may not be basically all right in the future, but most now, continually, you're actually all right right now. Most of the inputs into the brain originate inside the body, and they're usually like the calls of a night watchman saying, 
all is well. And yet we usually tune them out, partly because we habituate to them, because they're familiar, and also because Mother Nature, in a way, doesn't want us to think we're all right. She wants us to be, I call it delusional anxiety, <laughs> this background trickle of baseless anxiety, wow. just to keep us on our toes. Yeah. Check it out. You know, people can, like, try to walk across a room in which rationally, you know, I'm utterly safe now. I may not be safe in the future, but and now I am safe walking across a room, walking down a street without one molecule of anxiety. It's quite hard to do, actually. So that's in part why for everybody in general, but especially if you have a ten temperament that's relatively anxious, or maybe you have a life history that then really was, uh, uh, it was appropriate to be anxious, but today you're in a different place. You're not living with your parents anymore, maybe, or your big sister or brother, or those kids at school, or that person you were first in a relationship with, et cetera. And there's um, the rational basis for noticing you're actually okay most of the time. And I find with clients and people in general, it's a wonderful resource that's accessible at almost any moment to register, wow, now, 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 all rightness ongoing, wow. And with that often can come a sense of opening, relaxing, a lot of selfing arises around threat. Think of three main sources of selfing, threat, opportunity, and other people. And sometimes other people are a threat and an opportunity all in one package. It's uh, the uh, trifecta uh. of selfing. <laughs> Yeah. So, <clears throat> to recognize in, a, in this moment, actually, I am in this moment unthreatened. Mm -hmm. There might be a threat down the road, and also I can deal with threats without going into the red zone. Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of experience in many kinds of situations. One concrete example would be rock climbing. I'm walking on a little ledge, or I'm climbing a little ledge, where if I were to f slip, um, I would die but I'm not gonna fall off this little ledge that I'm walking along, you know? I'm okay. Or I'm driving in traffic, I two big trucks on either side. I'm really alert, you know? Um, maybe there's a little uh, healthy anxiety slightly rising, but it's not invading my mind. I'm not disturbing my core, you know? I'm dealing with threat. We can deal with challenges while staying in the green zone. Yeah. And one way to do that, especially around arguably our most primary need, which is for safety, safety tends to trump all things. Rule one in the wild, eat lunch today, don't be lunch today. You know, you can see it in relationships. Safety trumps everything. So You can see it in relationships? Yeah. You, in a relationship, if it's not safe, you can't do anything. Uh, you got to reestablish emotional and physical, certainly physical safety. Uh, otherwise, it's all about dealing with the threat. Mm. And we're very vulnerable to having people play on our fears. There's a lot about this that has political, social, cultural implications at a very large scale. Um, classically, in the history of so many societies, uh, various elites that want to you know, hold on to profit and power or grow it use fear to do so. Uh, you know, and so you make people scared, they'll put up with anything to have a strong quote-unquote father who sometimes wears a dress, you know, take care of them, protect them at all costs. So internalizing again and again, taking in the good again and again, feeling all right right now, recognizing the truth of it. Mm. I don't believe in positive thinking. It's about realistic thinking here, noticing what's true. I actually am all right in this moment. Can build up, goes back to that internalization of an unconditional greening of the brain, greening of the heart. Mm -hmm. uh, 
where we're moving through life and they're yapping at us, red level orange. But in your heart, you know, no, actually, it's not actually threat level orange right here in this body, on this flight, today. And I can move through life in uh, an internally peaceful, strong, and fearless way. Uh, I may have to be strong. I may need to speak truth to power. I may need to be fiery even. But I don't need to tip into the red zone in which I'm turning others into its and casting them out of my heart. You know, I mean, I need to cast them out of Congress, but I don't need to cast them out of my heart or my bed. <laughs> I'm not going to do that, honey. I've been married 30 plus years. <laughs> anyway. Awesome. It's wow. really wonderful stuff, isn't it? This yeah. This territory. Oh, my God. It's, uh, it's practical. and There's a lot of freedom in it. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm experiencing from listening to you. There's a lot of... Um, I think the opportunities for suffering to, to lessen. Yeah, that's truly my purpose. It's good. In my own practice and for other people. Mm -mm. Thank you, Rick. Oh, Sam, it's a real pleasure and honor. And if I could give a shout out here for Esalen, uh, what a legendary, crucial, frankly, um, American institution. I mean, if you can look back at the cultural history of America, uh, reaching certainly into the 60s. Uh, I think Esalen made a critical and seminal contribution at a series of important tipping points in our history. Mm -hmm. uh, we still have a lot of work to do, right? Yeah. Into the 21st century, as we as a species gradually adapt to the reality, which is utterly unprecedented, that there are now the actual objective causes and conditions in which, that would enable us to truly uh, help um, all uh, humans to be fundamentally safe, satisfied, and connected, right? Uh, and, and adapting our minds to that unprecedented reality compared to life in the Stone Age or life in Dickens, London, just 150 or so years ago, um, is really remarkable. And that said, even though we still have our work cut out, Esalen has made such a contribution, and I'm very honored to be able to be a part of the ongoing excellent process. Mm. Thank you very much. We've been speaking with Rick Hansen. His books are Buddha's Brain, Just One Thing, Hardwiring Happiness, and his website is rickhanson.net. That's H-A-N-S-O-N, rickhanson.net, and you can find out more about his, his offerings there. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. To hear more episodes of this podcast, please go to www.esalen.org, that's E-S-A-L-E-N, or head to iTunes and search for Voices of Esalen. I'm your host, Sam Stern. Have a beautiful day.